Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We believe that the Bible is inerrant in all of its teachings, that we can trust in everything that the Scriptures say. God said in the book of Psalms, I think it was 12, 6 and 7, or 5 and 6, that He will preserve His Word from generation to generation. That was a promise to us that God has preserved His Word, and it is in His Word that we trust. Now, the first question that we have today is one that I've been asked a couple of times lately, and it has to do with what is faith? The Bible says that we are saved by the grace of God, that's the work of our salvation, through faith. So it's through faith that we find ourselves in a relationship with Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of any works lest anyone should boast. So what is faith? Jesus said to the disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. The Bible also tells us that there's three things, three great things as it were, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Think about how great love is if it's by faith that we are saved. The Bible says we are saved by the grace of God through our own faith. Now, I went to church as a child to the United Methodist Church. I was actually saved at the United Methodist Church, but I believed that I was okay in going to heaven because I had been told and taught by the church that if you believed in God, then you would go to heaven. By believe in God, I thought it meant that he exists. And there are a lot of people today who believe that, that if they believe God exists, that's what really matters. If they believe in him, they'll make it to heaven. But James tells us in James 2, 19, that the demons believe and tremble. They believe God exists and they are fearful. They tremble at the thought of the living God. They tremble at the name of Jesus and they believe him, but they can't be saved. So faith is much more than just believing that God exists. There are also people that use faith as its own force that like uh, in, in Star uh, Wars, there was the force. They see faith as that force. And if you have enough faith, if you believe that God will give you something enough, then you, you, you have faith. But faith in faith is nothing. Faith apart from what you put faith in doesn't mean anything. If I have a ladder and I have faith that that ladder can hold me, but the ladder's old and worn out, and ready to break, and I step on that ladder, it doesn't matter how much faith I have, the ladder will not be able to support me. My faith is only as strong as what I put my trust in. And that's probably a a good way for us to define what faith is. Faith is trust. It's trusting what God says. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you can't receive faith until you receive the word of God. I can believe that God wants to give me something, 
But if I don't have any promises from God, putting all my faith into that doesn't mean anything. That's the power of positive thinking. That's new age thinking, that I can create my own reality, that if I think positively enough, I'll receive something. And so that's been adapted and, and brought into the church, where the church teaches now that if you just believe strong enough, you'll receive whatever it is that you believe. The Bible says in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, and it's all about faith, that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea by faith. Moses raised his hands. He was praying and God said, stop praying and raise up the staff. And he raised up the staff and the waters parted and, and they were commanded to go through. And I think of the first person standing there thinking, you go through. I don't want to go through. But there was someone there that had enough faith to be the first one to go through. God had given them a command and they followed the command and they were saved as on dry land. And then the Egyptian army rode in. They didn't have any faith. Why? Because God had made any promises to them and the water collapsed upon them and destroyed the Egyptian army. The same passage tells us that by faith they kept the Passover. God had told them, keep the Passover kill the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost of your house, and the death angel will pass over. God had promised them that. And so by faith, they did it. Now, I like to use this as an example. Just say one guy really didn't believe it. One family, one, 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 one said, I don't know, we've got this lamb, kind of like it. It's kind of a, a bloody, gory thing to smear blood on a doorpost. And um, I don't know if I should do it, but I, I do kind of like my firstborn. And so he did it, but he did it not believing it would do anything. And then a next door neighbor said, my firstborn's going to die if I don't slaughter this lamb and smear its, uh, its blood on my doorposts. And so he killed and sacrificed that lamb and ate it that night and smeared the blood on his doorpost, believing that God was now going to spare his son. Which one of those two, the one with a little bit of faith, enough faith just barely to do it, or the one that had great faith, which one was saved from the death angel? And it's a trick question. Both were. Because faith the size of a mustard seed moves mountains. When you have enough faith to do what God tells you to do, then that's the faith the size of a mustard seed. And the power of God's promises, the power of his word, then works inside of your life. Now, it's saving faith when you put your trust in Christ. And you, you have to put your trust in him. And so when I was asked the question when I was 14 years old, are you going to heaven? I said, yes. And they said, why? I said, because I believed in God. Their response to me was, does the devil believe in God? And I said, yes. He said, is the devil going to heaven? I said, no. He said, then it takes more than believing, doesn't it? You've got to trust him. I can believe the ladder's going to hold me, but I got to get up on the ladder sooner or later to show my trust. That's when, I, that's when I put my faith in that ladder. And if it's a good, solid ladder, it will hold you. And God is a good, solid ladder. And every promise that he's made in scripture, if you can trust in it, when God tells us that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and then we by faith go out and begin to do it. When the Bible tells us to love our enemies, something that's very hard to do. But if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, if we can just reach out and begin to do it, then we'll find ourselves with the ability to be able to love our enemies, to forgive those who have hurt us, even as we ask for forgiveness ourselves. That's living the life of faith. Faith is believing God enough to do what he said. 
It's having enough faith to be able to say, I will do what God told me to do. And if you don't do it, then you haven't had faith. You haven't trusted in God. Saving faith is receiving the work Jesus did upon the cross, believing it, receiving it, standing upon it, knowing that he died for our sins as the scriptures were foretold, that he was buried and he rose from the dead as the scriptures were foretold, and we will be saved if we will stand in that truth. And that's what it takes. It's not about going to church. It's not about being a part of a denomination. It's not about taking sacraments. It's not about being baptized. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's about trusting the gospel that Jesus died for our sins as foretold in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, and the iniquity of mankind was placed upon him. He died for our sins on that cross. The Bible says that he knew no he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And that happens when we put our trust in him, when we get to know him and walk with him. And that's what real faith is all about. That's when you are a man or a woman who lives by faith. Now, it's good to see you guys here. If you have a question, then you could write the word question down and then you can um, Put, or put the word question in front of it, then write out your question uh, and reread it, make sure that it makes sense and add any references in, in. We can take time to be able to stop and to look up those references and uh, then we'll be able uh, to answer your questions. And uh, so we have a question here from Kimberly and Kimberly says, question, um, happy Easter, Pastor Robert and happy Easter. May you really enjoy celebrating the resurrection of Christ, Kimberly. Uh, could you please explain what Jesus meant by submitting in Matthew eleven six, and the violence he mentions in verse 11? Thank you so much. All right, so let's go to Matthew um, eleven six, and then we'll look at a Matthew eleven six and 7. So Matthew 11, uh, 6. Let's see if I got it here. Yeah, Matthew eleven six. All right. So, uh, is this right? And blessed is uh, he who is not offended because of me. Can you please please say what Jesus meant by stumbling? Okay. So let's go back and read this in context. And then you wonder about verse eleven, and that's surely I say to you, um, those born among women, there has been a rise of greater than John the Baptist, but he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Oh, let's see, is that verse 11? Let's see, what, what is violence he mentions in verse 11? All right, let's go ahead and just read this. Let's try to read this in context and see if we can answer your first question, um, Kimberly, by what he means in uh, Matthew eleven six when he says um, stumble, all right? I'm just trying to get back here to... Okay, so this is the section where John the Baptist is doubting. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. Uh, he's doubting probably because he's in prison and he's had false expectations about Jesus, which is amazing that even a prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus said, could have had false expectations. I think that we sometimes have false expectations on Christ and that can lead to doubt in our own lives. So in verse one, let me put this up on the, on the screen for you. So in verse one, of, let's see, I'm bringing this down. Okay, so in verse one, 
of Matthew chapter 11. I hope we got the right passage here. It says, it came to pass when, uh, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, are you the one, you the coming one, or do we look for another? Then Jesus answered and said, go and tell John these things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, and the deaf hear, and the dead have the raised, uh, are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Now that is a compilation of Old Testament passages that talk about the work of the Messiah. You have to put four or five different passages together to get all of those things that he was supposed to go and tell John the Baptist. But John knew the Old Testament and so did Jesus. And so he would know to go back and find that, that those verses spoke of the Messiah, John would know it right offhand. And then he says, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. And that's where you're talking about the stumbling block, I think in other, um, in other versions, it says, blessed are those who are not stumbled by me. Um, Jesus says some pretty direct things and Jesus tells the truth. And sometimes I think of the, the woman at the well and the way that Jesus interacted with her. She could have been offended by him, but she ended up trusting in him. So blessed are those who are not offended. Jesus says uh, things that are hard for us to hear and hard for us to do. I talked about some of them when I was talking about faith, loving your enemy. That's a difficult thing to do to bless those who curse you, to forgive uh, just as you are, are forgiven. So these are all difficult things to do. And so he's saying, blessed is he who's not offended in me. And I think the reason he's saying that here to John is because John is expecting that there would be coming kingdom now. John knows the work of the Messiah. He knows that one day he will return and establish a kingdom upon the earth and his expectations aren't being met. And when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, you could be offended by him. You could stumble. Well, let's read on to verse 11 and see if we can figure out what the next part of your question was, Kimberly. And they departed saying, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, um, what did you go out to see into the wilderness? What did you go out to wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in the king's house. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he who it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and he will prepare a way before you. Surely I say to you, among those born among women, there is risen no greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So I'm not sure where the violence comes in. We'll read a few more verses here, Kimberly. Um, maybe the verse will be, it'll, it'll pop up here. But this statement's incredible. John the Baptist is greater than all the Old Testament prophets, which would have been a controversial, a controversial statement in his day because Moses was considered to be the greatest of all the prophets. But now that it would be John. And then that he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. I'd like to say that we don't have any idea who we really are in Christ or what we really have in him. The fulfillment that we have in our relationship of knowing him and being with him. Let's read this a little bit further and see if he gets to um, the, the part about um, taking the kingdom by violence. And from the days of John until, now here we go, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom suffers violence. And so from the days of John the Baptist 
until now, the kingdom suffers violence. There are a lot of different takes on this particular passage. Some believing that Jesus is using this as an allegory. And he's talking about people that are coming into the kingdom of God by violence. Others believe that John the Baptist was taken into prison. And if John the Baptist is taken into prison, then the kingdom of God has suffered violence. And then it says, and the violent take it by force. Now, that wouldn't mean that they get to take the kingdom of God, but that the violent take what they take by force. He goes on to say, for all the prophets and the law uh, prophesied unto John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah. And so, I think, you know, and, and we've talked about this before, and I'm trying to remember all of the things that we talked about. Uh, this was um, one of those passages that was a little bit difficult for us to kind of look through and, and to decipher. Um, but, and, I, and, our, and like I said, some people take this as being um, an allegory, and I don't know that that's true. I think he's talking about John the Baptist being taken in um, and suffering violence and the violence taken by force. I don't think he's talking about us being violent and taking it by force. That doesn't fit in with anything else that the scriptures say unless Jesus is using it as an analogy <clears throat> that we need to be aggressive spiritually to go out and bring the kingdom of God uh, by force. All right, so um, thanks Kimberly for your question. I wish I could remember all the other stuff that we had covered with it. Um, I see Psych Man's got a question here. Maybe he remembers because I know we had some conversations about it. Um, so Psych Man's in Spain. Uh, good to see you. Um, um, what do you think, Robert? Mo uh, must the agape love of God commanded be uh, to extent, uh, to extent to him, others be sacrificed to fulfill what he requires of us. Thanks. Yeah, so this is a message um, that Psych Man had left uh, on uh, our YouTube page that we talked about looking at today. Uh, the question really is, is agape love sacrificial? And if you're going to love someone with that agape love, are you going to sacrifice for them? The Bible says that husbands are to love their wives. That's the word agape and to die for them as Christ dies for the church. Jesus loves us, God loved us, and he gave his son. That was sacrificial. Uh, and the question is, can you have that true agape love and not have it be sacrificial? And I think when, when you're interacting with people, if you, if you love them the way that God wants you to love them, you're going to put their needs first. The Bible says that that we are to put other people's interest above our own interest. That's sacrificial. That we're, we're not, not to do anything out of selfish ambition. That's sacrificial. So yeah, the, there is a lot of, um, of, of, of sacrificial aspects to agape love. Um, we're to love our enemies and that we don't strike out against them or that we don't hate them, that we choose to pray for them and love them is sacrificial. So yeah, there's a lot of, sac of, of sacrifice uh, that goes along with that agape love. And um, supposed, we're supposed to um, have that agape love for everyone that we interact with. So we put other people first. And Jesus said that too. He was first as last. He was last as first. So you take the back of the line, looking to put other people first, which is sacrificial. So yes, there's a lot of, con <clears throat> of that concept of living in a sacrificial way and uh, in, in the agape love. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, 
Psych Man and Enjoy Spain. Uh, so we have an, a question here from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, question, is it true or false God won't give us more than we can handle? It sometimes seems he calls us to do things only through his strength. Thanks. Yeah, this is a really good question, um, Jari, because people misread uh, a passage that talks about temptation uh, that says, um, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. So talking specifically about temptation, that he's not going to give us more temptation than we can take and that there will be a way of escape. We also remember that with temptation, Jesus told Peter in the garden, pray lest you enter into temptation. So prayer helps us to not be tempted. If you find yourself giving into temptation, having temptation so strong in your life, then pray that God would lighten that. Pray about it. Pray that God would help you. Delight yourself in the Lord. Walk in the Spirit. Do all the things that you need to do uh, to be able to do it. But then, Jari, they will take that and they bring it over to every aspect of life. That God's not going to give me more than I can handle. Now, if you could take this from an eternal perspective... It's certainly true. I face something here in this life and it overwhelms me and I die from it. Well, I was given more than I could handle. I couldn't handle whatever it was that took my life. So there's a way in which that isn't true. But from eternity, I'm now with the Father and my trials are behind me and I'm now in eternity with Him. And so I was able to handle it. But that doesn't mean that things can't get really tough and really hard. And I don't like when people will say, God won't give you more than you can handle because you don't know what's coming your way. Maybe the truth is you find out that you can handle more than you thought you could. I mean, at some point, what else can you do except move on when the unthinkable happens, when the dark days happen? And the truth is, is that bad things do happen to good people. Bad things happen to Christians. And sometimes that it, it is the unthinkable that happens. So no scripture that I can think of would back up that God won't give you more than you can handle. Certainly with temptation, yes. But just as far as life in general, no. Um, but it is a good promise, a good strong promise for us to stand on with temptation. And with the temptation, it provides a way of escape. So even when you are tempted, then look for the way of escape. God will give you a way to get out of it so you won't fall into that temptation. All right. So thank you very much, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, that's, that's a good thought. And um, hey, we put our trust in God and we pray that God would would bless us, and we pray that God would allow us to be able to use whatever comes our way for His glory and to lift up His name. All right, so thank you very much. Now, we have a question from GDH, and GDH says, um, what happened to people who believe in Jesus but die unsaved? Infant baptism only in this case. Okay, so um, let me just think about your question here. What happens to people who believe in Jesus but die unsaved? So these are people who believe Jesus exists and then die unsaved. 
if you, the Bible says, if you call out upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think that is Romans 10, 10. Let me get that up here for you. I want to, I want to just show you this verse. If it's Romans 10, 10. Yeah. So let me just go ahead and put this up for you. So here it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jews or Greek, for the same Lord is a Lord over all, is rich to those who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, and um, verse 9, yeah, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth um, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so I guess I'm just a, a little confused with your question. If you believe, that's the way that you're saved. I don't know what infant baptism has to do with this. Um, I believe that babies go to heaven. I believe that they don't know their right hand from their left hand and that we serve a just and a righteous God and they don't need to be baptized in order to go to heaven. So maybe you want to, um, JDH, maybe you want to just kind of rephrase your question again. I think we'll have time. We're still pretty early in the Q&A. If, if I didn't really hit on it, so I'm not sure exactly what you're asking, so I might have missed it completely. And if that's the case, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe it's me, but if you can clarify it, um, I would really appreciate that. Um, so we have a question from um, Nelson. Nelson says, um, blessings, Pastor. Thank you. Can you break down Colossians 2, 14? Uh, let's break it down. Let's unpack it, as pastors like to say. I wonder how many times that's used on a Sunday morning. Let's unpack this passage. Um, Colossians 2, 14. Colossians 2, 14. Let me take a look at it here. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Good one. Let's um, let's go back a little bit, and we'll start reading it. You were asking about 2.14. I want to read it in context. Sometimes reading the context just really helps out, helps us get to the right place. So I want to start in verse 11. You were asking about 14. Uh, Nelson, it says, In him you also were circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands. That is, circumcision was the way that they showed their faith in the Old Testament, and we've been circumcised without that circumcision uh, in our hearts by putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, by also which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses. And then your, your verse, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. So in Revelation, it, it has the scene of judgment in the second death, which is the second resurrection, which the Bible calls the second death. And the books are opened and God judges people. And there's things written down that they've done. 
And here we have a promise having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Now, that could mean having wiped out our sin. It also can mean that we are no longer under the law because he's talking about circumcision and the circumcision of the heart and that we are no longer under the law. We take the book of Galatians very seriously in that the Bible says that if you're under the law still, then Jesus died in vain. And so having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which may be the law, which was contrary to us, it may also be talking about our sins, right, that are written down, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so then, if we just put that with the verse that's above it, where it says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven uh, you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting requirement that was against us. So I'm going to say that's, that's our trespasses being written out and that he was nailed to the cross and by the shedding of his blood, our sins have been forgiven and now we have a right relationship with him. Now, the scary part is, is that if you don't trust in Christ, if you don't have him circumcise your heart, as it was said earlier in this passage, and believe in him, then the handwriting of requirements that was against you, you is still there. And that's why you trust in him, call out upon his name so that your sins can be forgiven because they've been nailed to the cross. Let's see if it goes on. Um, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. And I love that by getting rid of your sin, by, by nailing it to the cross, he makes an open spectacle of principalities and powers triumphing over them. So then he says, and now it comes back to the law. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard to festivals or new moons. All those are Jewish things, which are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is in Christ. So he is talking about the law in, in this context. Let me just read 13 and 14 again. And you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all of your trespasses, which the sacrifices of the law did that, but now Jesus does it, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, which was against us, which could be the law and us breaking the law, right? It could be both. For he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities, powers, made public perspectives of them, triumphing over them. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Don't let anyone put you back under the law again, because people try to, that keeping the law today is as how you're really saved. It says, which are shadow of things to come. So hopefully, Nelson, um, that is helpful. I think going back to context uh, really does help that. Uh, really does help us when we're looking at a passage and trying to figure out what exactly does that passage mean. The, God, the context can, can help us a lot. Um, and we have a question by WMB, which asks, um, have the seven seal been re re revealed or opened? Let's go, let's go to the book of Revelation. Let's take a look at what that seventh seal is. Got to ever think of where it's at. We're in, um, we're in the book of Revelation now. 
and um, so, and, we're, and we just covered the sixth trumpet, and we'll have the seventh trumpet next time. Um, the fourth seal, the fifth seal is the martyrs, the sixth seal is cosmic disturbances, and the seventh seal, let's see here, after these things I saw angels standing in heaven, so you've got the, the, the tribes that are sealed, you've got the great multitude that come out of the tribulation period, and then the seventh seal, here it is. Um, so let's read this together. And we're asking, um, has this taken place? When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So this means that, that when this seal was open, there was something about it that caused all of heaven to be silent for, for a half an hour. And it says that I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. Then uh, another angel having a golden censer came and stood on the altar and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon it. So incense in the Bible is a type of our prayers, that our prayers are always heard. Our prayers are always going up into heaven, that they are that they are n never gone. You pray a prayer and you think, oh, now that's gone, I got to pray another one. No, you keep praying, but your prayers always go up before God. And now all of the prayers of the saints are put into this golden censer that he should offer the prayers uh, of all the saints, the golden, um, upon the golden altar, uh, which was before the throne. So before God's throne is a golden altar. An altar is a place where sacrifices are made. And because there was sin in our lives, there had to be sacrifices to be able to make things right between us and God. And so it says, and, um, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was noises and thunders and lightnings and earthquakes. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So out of the sixth seal, right? Is that the, did I read the sixth seal or did I read the seventh seal? Which one did you ask about? You asked about, yeah, the seventh seal. All right. So, yeah, the seventh seal is, is in preparation for the trumpets. So, the, the opening of the seals in the book of Revelation is not completed until the seventh seal is open and the seven trumpets sound. When the seventh trumpet sounds, it says... Now, um, the, let me see if I can get there. Let me get to the seventh trumpet. Fifth trumpet, um, my angel book, two witnesses. Um, let me just see, see if I can take a minute to find uh, the, there's quite a bit that happens before you get to the, before you get to the seventh trumpet. Well, when the seventh trumpet is sounded, the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of God. And if that scroll is the title deed, then the seventh trumpet sounds, which is the end of the seventh seal being opened. And it is the earth returning to God now and God controlling the things that are taking place um, upon the earth. God being in charge of everything. Remember, the, the 
Lamb of God was the one worthy to take the scroll, and so he opened up these seals. The answer to your question, no. Um, none of the seals have been opened yet. How do we know this? Because when the tribulation period starts, then the Antichrist is going to be revealed. He will be revealed at the beginning of the tribulation period. There are those today who believe that they are in the tribulation period, just like the church at Thessalonica thought this. So, this is 2 Thessalonians. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, that would be the rapture of the church. When we are gathered to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ is the day of the Lord. That's the tribulation period. So, somebody had, de had deceived them and told them the day of the Lord had come. They were still there. They hadn't been gathered together. And so, he's writing this to them. So, he says, let no one deceive you by, uh, to deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away here is either the apostasy or the church. The word is apostasia and can mean being taken away. So, it's, it's, it's either, and we're seeing a great falling away today, people walking away from their faith or a revelation that they never really had saving faith anyway. And they're walking away from that, the great falling away, the great apostasy. Um, and then the man of sin is revealed. Now, it doesn't say the man of sin has to be revealed first. Then the tribulation period starts. It says, and the man of sin be revealed. The first seal that is opened is the white horse with a bow and a crown, that, and the crown is a withering crown, by the way, that's on the head of the Antichrist, because he doesn't rule forever. He's not like Jesus when he comes back on a white horse at the end of the book of Revelation with many lasting crowns, but he's got a, a wreath like you win uh, in um, an Olympiad, and he'll come out and he will be one of the characteristics of the tribulation period, okay? So, no, the seventh seal has not been broken. None of the seals have been broken. Um, we're still waiting for the scene up in heaven, which before that seal, first seal will be opened, I believe that there will be the rapture of the church and then that first seal uh, will be opened. All right? So, and, and we can talk more about that if you have questions because I just said a lot there that there could end up being a lot of questions from. All right? Um, and thank you, Amanda, for your blessings. I really appreciate that. Um, They're very welcomed, and may the Lord bless you, <clears throat> too, as you celebrate our Lord's resurrection. Um, um, I did not see a blood moon last night, Susan. I wish I, I wish I would have. I don't know uh, what that was, what that was from, but um, I think that's interesting. And so, um, Letitia has a question for, uh, for, for me, um, has a question, can we be saved by faith alone? Um, and I, Letitia, I think what you're thinking of is where in James, it says, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you by my faith, by my works. And he talks about Abraham being saved by responding. And um, you know what? It's, it's in, it's in um, James chapter 2. Let's go there. So, we know how Paul felt about faith, right? 
And thank you for your question, Letitia. Uh, we know how God, how Paul felt about faith. He said, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works lest anyone should boast. And so our response from that passage would be that, yeah, it's faith alone. You're saved by faith. You're saved when you come to Christ and you put your trust in him. But what happens is, is you are transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, which means you weren't believing the gospel, but now you believe the gospel and now you're transformed. And the sign that you've been transformed is that you begin living for him. So then James, who's fighting an entirely different enemy than, than Paul is fighting. In the book of James, in Ephesians, Paul is fighting those who are legalists who want to add works to salvation. In the book of James, he's fighting people who are saying, you know what, I'm saved and I'm okay. I don't have to do anything for Christ. But the Bible says that this is the means by which we know whether or not we're saved if we keep his commandments. And so James comes at it with a, from a, a different direction. So he says, and I'm going to read this starting in verse 19. I read this verse a little bit earlier when we were talking about faith. He says, this is verse 19 of James chapter 2. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So that's what we talked about. You can have demonic faith. You can believe that God's there, but not put your trust in him. And then he says, but do you want to know, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, this seems completely contradictory to what Paul says in Ephesians. So much so that Martin Luther thought that the book of James should not be in the Bible. Because it lo he looks like he's saying here that he was justified by his works. But we know clearly in the book of Revelation, it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And Paul makes the point in the book of Galatians that we are the children of Abraham who believed, not the children of Moses, but who gave the law, but the children of Abraham, because we believe and we are saved. So what's James talking about? He says, do you not see that faith uh, was working together with his works, and by works faith was made was perfected? And the scriptures uh, were fulfilled, saying, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him righteousness. Okay? Now, I don't think that this is contradictory to Ephesians. Here's what James is saying. And, and Paul would say the same thing, that when you have faith in God, your faith is perfected or revealed. Remember, it's written in Greek. So you've got Greek words that are being translated over into English, right? So your faith is perfected when you are now doing the works God's called you to do. Because when you're saved, you're going to begin to do the things God wants you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, it says in 1 John, if you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, you're lying. You don't really love him. And so real saving faith has transforming power. But works don't happen first. Faith happens. And then works are the evidence that I have been changed because I want to begin to do the things that God's called me to do now. And this is so important to understand it in this way. Otherwise, you end up with a works-based religion. And he was, uh, and, and uh, 
James was very careful not to write that. I mean, if we go back to it again, um, he goes on to say, after Abraham believed God and it was accounted him righteousness, and he was called the friend of God, you see then the man is justified by works and not by faith only. So the works are the evidence of faith. And so he says, not by faith only, which is why I came to this verse when you asked, can we be saved by faith alone? Because James tells us that works will accompany our faith or perfect our faith. If all we have is faith, then we're like the demons that he mentioned in verse 19. We just believe God exists. But if we trust in him now, which is not a work, and then God transforms us and we begin doing the things that God's called us, it becomes evidence that you and I have been saved and have given our life to Christ. <clears throat> All right. So, um, thank you very much. Um, was that uh, Letitia? Yes. Thank you very much for that question and for that clarification. Uh, because it's good to take a look at both of those together and understand Paul's fighting the legalists and James is, is fighting the people who don't believe they need to do anything. Remember, James will say pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is taking care of widows and orphans. And the ones that James are fighting against are people who are living in the world and who are not living um, for God at all. All right. So um, we have a question from Rod. Uh, yeah, we have a question from Rod. Rod, good to see you. Rod says, what about pagan Easter? What about the pagan Easter question? Yeah, um, every year at uh, this time, Christmas time, Halloween, um, you get a lot of people that will come out and say that, that Easter is pagan. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that, that Easter, Christmas, Halloween, all of these have pagan backgrounds. Uh, and there are some legalistic Christians who will do the same thing. And they will tell you that these are all paganistic. Um, that putting a tree in your house is, is pagans. Painting eggs up and hiding them for your kids is pagan. Um, that having bunnies or any Easter bunnies is, is pagan. Now, here's the problem with all of that, Rod. And that is, as far as we know, there's no correlation between Easter and Ishtar, the Sumerian goddess, there's no correlation between how, how they worshipped her. We, they, they don't, we don't know anything. All we have, it's a quote from a, a guy by the name of St. Beard, who in the 8th or 9th century, that makes a quote that says something about Easter and, and the, the worship of, of a goddess being connected. But we don't know anything else about it. That's the only one that we have. It's just like Christmas. They say that it's Saturnalia but, and, and that you, uh, they would take in trees into their house or it's a Tammuz tree from Jeremiah, which was, uh, which was a totem pole that, worshiped, um, that would worship Tammuz. And none of those things are true. There is no evidence that, that Easter is connected to Ishtar or connected to the goddess of fertility. In fact, it seems that the name Easter came from an old Germanic name for the month and it was shortened from this Germanic name to Easter because it's the Germanic people that brought the term Easter around. Around the world, it was called Paschal or, or Passover or Paschal like, like that. And so, in America, it became known as Easter. 
I don't believe there's any evidence that we are being pagan when we use the term Easter. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Um, pagans did everything, right? And pagans worshipped in all kinds of bizarre ways. We have our months named after pagan gods. We have days of the weeks named after pagan gods. And that's like saying, when I say January 2nd, it would be like someone saying to me, well then, now you're pagan. And so, even if there was a worship to some fertility goddess that St. Beard knew about, that they painted eggs for, it doesn't mean when people are painting eggs and hiding them for their kids today, that that is somehow connected to that paganism. If, if you want to say anything that, anything that pagans did is wrong, then there's a lot of things that we're going to have that we do that would be wrong. In fact, it seems that the best answer to why people paint eggs around Easter time is that it was connected to Lent and that they would, would hard boil eggs and then hide them because in Lent you couldn't eat eggs. And so, they would go and, and find the eggs after they kept Lent. There seems to be that's the connection of the eggs. The, the whole idea of bunnies, it's just springtime. Bunnies are everywhere during springtime. doesn't mean that some fertility goddess was worshipped with bunnies. You got to go back and cite, the, the, you got to go back and find the evidence for it. And, and, and when these guys, a lot of them, when, when you watch some of their videos and they're calling things pagans, they're like, come on, bunnies, come on, eggs. You guys are doing that at Easter time, but they aren't making any connections to any quotes from anything in paganism that that's how they did it. And, and they're not doing it today. Christmas trees, the same thing. Um, a Christmas tree was Martin Luther brought Christmas trees in. And uh, there are certain traditions like Halloween that wasn't formed until it was in the United States when it was immigrants that came from all around the world and had different holidays that they worshipped on or that they have different holidays that they celebrated different kind of things on October 31st and November 1st and 2nd and they were all put together in this, um, you know, all all Saints' Eves, which was just to think about the dead um, the night on uh, on, hall, on the, the night before November 1st, which was All Saints' Day. So, you're thinking about the living, you're thinking about the dead. And so, that has turned into what Halloween is today and has nothing to do, no, there's no evidence that it has anything to do with the paganism that was behind it. And um, if there is evidence, great. Let's get it out on, on the table. Let's take a look at it. Let's see what that evidence is. But let's not make evidence up. Give the citing. A, a scholarly work would go back, find the evidence, find the, the, the quote, find where it's written about, f find the different sources, bring them together, cite them, and talk about the connections. That's not done on, on any of it. So it's absolutely fine to say, you know, may you be blessed on Easter. And it's not pagan. And it's not pagan to, to have your kids go on an Easter egg hunt or to have chocolate bunnies in their basket. You're not having them worship the fertility goddess. And, and they go back to an Old Testament passage and make a connection there and then try to make the connection to paganism today and the connections just don't work. They're just not there. There is no evidence um, for it. All right. Um, 
and I'm trying to think if you want some, um, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, there was a book written by, I think it's Alexander Hyssop, which was a really bad um, book, a really bad um, work that cited a lot of things that weren't true. And a lot of people just repeat what he said instead of going back and looking at it. And that's where a lot of these quotes from paganism come from, uh, from, from Hyssop's book. But Hyssop's book is a really bad book. It doesn't, the things that he says there, he has no citations for them. It's not a scholarly work, but people take it as if it's gospel. Um, and when he tries to make the connections between Christmas and Saturnalia, when they weren't even on the winter solstice, it wasn't even the 25th of December. All right. So hopefully that answers that question. Um, we can get into more detail on it at some point. Um, we have a question from Cindy. Cindy says, um, Pastor Robert, so glad you and the team are back from Israel. Thank you very much. We're glad to be back as well. It was a great trip, a little too busy. I'd like to slow things down next time, maybe a little bit and um, have some more time to reflect, but um, we're glad to be back. <clears throat> May God bless you this resurrection weekend. Thank you for leading us in uh, the word as well. Thank you, Cindy. I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, believing in the resurrection uh, today. What you, you can believe in the resurrection and why can we believe in the resurrection? We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 15, talking about the gospel and the resurrection in our Bible study uh, tonight. So we have a question from Daniel. Daniel, good to see you. Um, and Daniel says, uh, what do you think of AI and systems like uh, ChatGPT and Revelation 13.15? Supernatural or natural? Revelation 13.15, we talk about the mark of the beast. Daniel, I think. Let me just go there and double check that. 13.15. And he will grant power over to give breath to the image of the beast. Yes, and the image that should speak, uh, that should both speak. Yeah. So, great question, Daniel. And yes, I've made this connection. I thought about this. Um, so, you've got Chat BT, uh, Chat um, GPT three that came out a little while ago. Then Chat Chat PT uh, GPT four came out um, a little bit after that, and you can now ask it to write you papers or do equations or write code for you. And this is all just picking up steam. And it's suggested that because it can write code, that pretty soon you won't need as many people writing code as you have now. A lot of people will lose jobs if they can't write code. And Daniel um, works on, on the web. And um, it's been suggested that, that, that they're going to be able, that what you'll do is learn how to handle an AI system to be able to write the code because they're going to be able to work so much faster on everything. Um, and there's a lot of questions about AI today, whether or not <clears throat> it's safe for us. But the idea now would be when the false prophet puts up a, an idol in the temple that can talk, that it could be an AI that is in the image of the Antichrist and that you can go in and ask the Antichrist anything through this, this image and because it's AI, it would be able to answer your questions. Um, so uh, it says, given breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
And so it's looking for people to worship him as well. And um, it looks like this could be one of those fulfillments. Still a couple questions there, right, Daniel? Breath. So um, what does the breath here mean? Does it mean that AI will have a soul at some point? Um, what is that, singularity? That it will come to having consciousness? So yeah, great question and a great one to think about. And I, uh, I'll go more into depth in that, Daniel, when we get there here in the book of Revelation. So we are not that far away from being there. All right. So we are close to being done here. Uh, we got a, a question from Dan here. Let's see what else we got. Um, all right. I'm going to... I'll look at these questions a little bit later on. Um, Yeah, um, Nelson says that Colossians verse 14 actually begins in 9 through 15. Right. Um, thanks. All right. Yeah. So let me go back and look at this um, question from Dan. Um, Dan says, Happy Easter, Pastor. He is risen. My question revolves around the church. I remember you mentioning, mentioning about radical Christian churches. I want to be... Uh, I I I I I went to a friend's Christian church one day last week and I found that it did not rub me the right uh for some reason. I forgot what you were saying about a radical Christian churches in one of your services and forget what you said about them. I am confused now about these type of churches. Can you interpret this for me? I am confused about what they teach. For example, don't do this and don't do that. Should I be wary of this? You explain things very well, and I want to get your take on this. Um, so, there's a lot that I don't know, Dan, from your question. Um, when I'm talking about a radical church, am I talk is it when I'm talking about an extreme charismatic church, an extreme Pentecostal church, am I talking about churches that teach false doctrine, like the um, that God wants you rich, like the prosperity movement. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by don't do this and don't do that. I think probably all, you know, for example, don't do this and don't do that. I, I think that all churches are going to at some point talk about what to do and what not to do. Whether or not they're going by what the Word of God says is what matters. Um, and uh, so... Dan, I'm not sure how to answer your question. Um, maybe you can um, give me some clarity in, our, in a future Q&A um, about whether or not you're talking about extreme charismatic churches, if that's what you're talking about, um, and whether or not um, you should be confused. I would say that churches, that there, there are extreme charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches who do love Jesus, genuine Christians, that don't practice the gifts of the Spirit in the right way. And they should because they've got direction in the Bible to be able to do it. But that doesn't mean that they're not Christians. When they, when they begin teaching false teachings and they deny what the Scriptures say, then we would say that they are false churches. So I know I'm being broad, but I, I'm, I don't know exactly, Dan, um, what you're talking about. Sometimes it's good to be able to ask questions. And unfortunately, I'm out of time and won't be able to do it. 
But it's been good to be here with you guys today. Thank you for your questions. I hope that this has been helpful, um, answering these to the, you know, again, just the best we can. Hope that you're really blessed. Um, I hope that you guys have a great resurrection weekend, a great Easter weekend, right? Because there's nothing wrong with saying that. And um, I do appreciate you guys. Uh, we're going to have a service in about an hour. Uh, this is our resurrection celebration. And we're going to be talking about the supernatural and the heart of the gospel and that you can believe in the resurrection. All right, God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you next time. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have one, a Q&A &A on Wednesday night. All right, God bless you.